Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. here with my co-host Kate Riga and you know we were normally we record the Josh Marshall podcast on Wednesdays at noon and uh, I had some you know uh, someone an electrician coming by uh, my apartment yesterday so we delayed but right as we were delaying we had the news break about Stephen Breyer retiring from the Supreme Court so it's sort of fortuitous in the sense that you know it's good that, that it's good that we waited a day because now we're kind of we have a be, a better sense of kind of what's going on there. That's obviously the the big news, the big news um, for this episode of the podcast. And we were just you know d- discussing before we went on the air. Where's the drama going to come in here with the retirement of Stephen Breyer and the nomination of it? Se- it seems like there's like two or three people. It's probably going to be. It's a relatively short list that people are focusing on. And, um, you know, in the old days, there was always this when there was a nomination, there was always like, is there going to be a surprise pick? And, you know, outside the box, you know, you kind of are you going to play it close to the vest or go long, you know, kind of like, a you know, with with um, with Democrats, it was always are you going to kind of try to have a Democratic Scalia, like an ideological anchor, or are you just going to go with someone who's, you know, more a consensus candidate? And I think one of the things I think we've learned with Joe Biden, you're not going to get a big surprise. You're not going to, you know, it's, it's not going to be someone you never heard of. And, and, and from what I can tell, the, the kind of people who invest a lot in these decisions by which I mean, you know, the people who are court watchers and all that kind of, you know, all that kind of stuff. From what I can tell, the three or four people who've been mentioned as as probable nominees, everybody's kind of fine with all of them, you know, and, and they all seem good and whatever. Uh, so, you know, not no big kind of no big drama there. And I mean, there's maybe some inherent drama in what seems likely or almost a certainty, the first African-American woman on the court, but no drama, kind of more drama than that already. We know that's, we know that's coming. And so we're talking about, so what's, you know, is it just, are we just going to kind of have a lot of ruckus and then a, and then a 50-50 <laughs> vote that where uh, Kamala Harris uh, breaks the tie or what's going to happen? Or, or is Joe Manchin going to, are we, are we, is this going to be, you know, BBB2? right? Or voting rights too. Well, just before we turned on, you know, 
turn on the recorder here to start the episode. Uh, you know, there's that there's that radio show, like talk radio show down in West Virginia, which has been uh, for the last year an origin point of despair. <laughs> for Democrats, like whenever, whenever everything seems to be going great, and 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 Joe Manchin wants to wants to let everybody know that it's not going great, that in fact he's torpedoing the whole thing. He goes on that on that talk radio show and drops the information there. Well, Kate was just looking before, right before we started recording, and I guess he just went on that show this morning and basically said, "Yeah, these people look fine. I'm I'm going to vote for it." You know, I'm sure it wasn't exactly those words, but you know that kind of thing that he's on board. There's no drama. It's 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 kind of done and done. Which which doesn't as 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 Kane was just saying. I was going to say it doesn't really surprise me because he doesn't really have any big interest in in having this be difficult. I mean, I, I don't think Joe Manchin exactly wants to hurt Democrats or hurt Joe Biden. But to the extent he had points he wanted to make with the, with the Build Back Better, I mean, he's made those points pretty resoundingly, and he's made them with the filibuster. So. Uh, it doesn't surprise me, and yet I am I am also accustomed at this point to thinking Joe Manchin's on board. And well, okay, obviously he's not on board, and in fact he's going to blow up the whole thing. So uh, that's 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 good to hear. I mean, you know, maybe it won't turn out that way, uh, but you know, so far so good. Uh, so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about this pretty scary and dangerous situation uh, in Ukraine uh, with Russian troops and heavy armaments uh, kind of stacked up at the at the border between the two countries. And then we're also going to talk about redistricting. We've had some, some sort of uh, semi-unexpected uh, things happen on the on the redistricting front. And, and I guess that that is that has been one of the things about redistricting over the last few months. I think everybody for very understandable and very good reasons got so hyped up about it is going to be the biggest disaster ever. Like Republicans are basically going to, you know, gerrymander Democrats into one house seat in the whole country kind of thing. That it hasn't been quite as bad as people expected. And again, that's not a, that's not a high bar. But there's also been a pattern where even federal courts in fairly conservative districts have have just said no to some things, or um, state courts. Um, I, I Kate will know better than than I am uh, able to remember, but I think you know uh, Ohio is a case like this. Even state courts, and I believe even state courts that are you know run by uh, if not nominally Republicans, Republican appoint, appointees, basically saying you know that's too much. You can't do that. You got to try again. So we're going to talk about all that. Before we get started, let me remind you that the Josh Marshall Podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee. So you got hooked on $6 iced oat lattes and $5 nitro cold brews. It happens to the best of us. But a few months and a few hundred bucks later, you're ready to become your own barista. Making cold brew at home isn't rocket science, but it is messy. Not to mention the need for grinders and strainers, unitask or brewing containers. I don't even know about these. This sounds like... Uh, <laughs> What's the, what's the, uh, it sounds like, you know, kind of breaking bad kind of thing. Uh, if you want to make cold brew at home, the easy way, order Grady's cold brew kit. It's a simple and space efficient way to make a week's worth of coffee without the mess. Ready to give it a swirl, get 25% off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. That's Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. And, you know, I've, I've used that uh, kit a bunch of times. Easiest thing in the world. So they're a little bag. You put the bags in, you know, you got a little kind of plastic sealable bag. You get the little bean bags, toss them in, put some water, 
you know, let it let it sit for I think it's twelve hours, maybe twenty four. I can't remember. I think maybe it's twelve, and uh, and you're good to go. So it's good stuff. So, uh, Kate, what is, what is the deal with the Briar, uh, you know, nomination thing? Are we finally yeah. going to have some some non terrible news here? <laughs> I kind of seems like it. I guess let's start with the way that this news came out because I thought it was kind of strange. You thought it was less strange. Let's just talk about it. So what happened was it came through the press. You know, it came through basically all the biggest, you know, like networks, NBC, CNN. They all kind of had it within moments of each other in a way that that's what you usually see when there's, you know, a purposeful leak. When when someone is trying to get information out very quickly and very loudly, you're going to give it to those the places that have the biggest platforms. And that's kind of how this happened. But then it was weird because so we get all this all these reports, you know, Breyer intends to retire and then nothing kind of hours elapsed without an official statement from Breyer, an official statement from like the press outfit at the Supreme Court. You had Biden kind of brushing off questions and saying, you know, he hasn't made a a statement yet. I'll, I'll talk about it when he does. And now, you know, things have kind of solidified today, you know, in a matter of minutes, actually, we're recording this just before 1230. Biden is going to have a, a speech in the Roosevelt room. Breyer's going to be there, you know, everything like that. But, you know, yesterday, it really was just a full day of just reports that he was going to retire without really any solid confirmation. And I saw one, I, I wasn't familiar with her, but I guess she is a commentator on Fox sometimes or a, a contributor who did shared some reporting that Breyer was, you know, perhaps upset or surprised with the way things had gone that he didn't intend to announce his retirement yesterday. So what do you make of all that? You know, (laughs) I don't think this is true, but in a kind of a conspiratorial funny sense, I did kind of wonder like, you know, maybe, maybe the White House kind of got wind of it, but thought he'd get cold feet and just sort of said, hey, yeah, he's retiring. You (laughs) you know, you can cite it to me Um, because there's been so much democratic demands, desire, begging, don't put us in this position where for no reason at all, you're going to give this, um, give this seat to Mitch McConnell. It was a little odd at some level, but the, the thing I thought about, and you and I talked about this yesterday, that I remember when uh, Anthony Kennedy retired, that they did it as this kind, you know, this this press event with Trump at the White House. And, and I may be misremembering, but that sounded... That that felt out of character to me. I didn't I didn't remember in the past when there was a retirement that the justice went and kind of glad handed with the president like that. That's you know these things are obviously very political, but that's that seemed the, the kind of not how it's done. So and again, maybe I'm misremembering this, but that's my general memory that that's kind of not. Uh, not how business is is usually conducted, and so it didn't surprise me necessarily that um, you know that that Breyer and the White House hadn't like coordinated this and everything. I, my best guess is that he wanted to do this yesterday. I'm sorry, he wanted to do this today. It got out. Um, it does, as you say, it does seem like a kind of a standard organized plan released to everyone. It's not like it's not like whoever reported it first got a big scoop. And even though it was out there, he didn't want and he didn't want the court to put out like a thing saying, yeah, he's retiring. But but but, but wait, it's he's 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 going to make a real announcement tomorrow. So, you know, <laughs> and that's kind of awkward and everything. So I don't have a great explanation. I think it's some, I don't know, mix of that. Uh, but 
yeah, that's my that's my take on that. Yeah, and I'm sure our listeners are are well aware, but just to remind everyone, you know, the reason Democrats wanted him to retire so badly is not, you know, because he's an unreliable kind of liberal vote on the bench or because people don't like how he's come down on decisions. It's because he's 83 and everyone's really worried that, you know, he'll hang on until Republicans, you know, retake the Senate and then kind of, you know, go the way of RBG, which is that dies at an inopportune time and Democrats have lost their chance to put, you know, a, a young liberal on the bench and to kind of push back a little bit against the insanely or, or, at least, or at least sort of reinforce the the three person right. group um i mean it it's you know it's, i think it's important to say that there is an entirely possible scenario where after january 2023 you may be i mean you could be 20 years but there's a very plausible scenario that six years until you have a chance to to have another uh, democratic you know, nominee, at which point Breyer is, is what, 89 or 90? It's like playing with fire. And as much as for very good reasons, uh, Ginsburg is sort of a, you know, now a kind of sainted figure in the, in the world of, uh, you know, both feminism and liberal jurisprudence, we can't forget the fact that during Obama's second term, during her first term, she had already had a very serious cancer, right? That was not a cured cancer, a, a kind of a managed cancer. She was very old. And so, again, as much as everybody celebrates her for great reasons, we could have, we would have been in a very different situation if she would have decided to retire while. President Obama was still president. We would not be here right now. And uh, people are, you know, for very understandable reasons, you know, look what happened. Briar, yeah. like, look what happened, dude. And, you know, I, I certainly, I certainly get it from the other side. You know, you're Stephen Breyer. You've been on the court for more than a third of your life. I think he's, you know, roughly 30 years, maybe a little less than 30 years, maybe 28 years, something like that. And, you know, you are, you've been in this pinnacle position, you are an old man, but still, you know, entirely on top of things, you're doing what you see is this critical thing. And everybody, you know, and kind of a bunch of people a lot long, younger than you are saying, hey, you're probably going to die soon. You better <laughs> retire. Come on, retire, man. I mean, <laughs> that that's a little rough from a few, you know, from a, from a few different angles. Not not just the uh, no one wants to hear that about themselves, but also kind of if you see yourself as doing this very methodical, um, you know, jurisprudential work. Clearly, he felt and feels diminished for someone to say, "Hey, you know." We got to sub someone else in. We need another member of Team Blue to be there. So you got to, you got to leave. I get that. That's not welcome. I mean, I, I I completely get that. I completely get his, you know, resisting and 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 not being happy about it. And I suspect there's a lot of, um, you know, I suspect he's not doing this terribly happily. Uh, on the other hand, and and this really, you know, to to dig a little deeper into this, there are a number of interviews, statements he's made over the last couple of years, basically saying, hey, the court isn't just political. 
It's not just Democrats and Republicans. We need to preserve this, you know, kind of hallowed thing that is not just partisan politics. And yet, the reality of the world that we are living in, it may not be for him, but he has come to embody the sort of myopia of what is increasingly the old school liberal jurisprudential world where you're holding on to that idea, which whether or not that was ever the case, it's definitely not the case now. You know, for people my age, especially, you know, your age, Kate, you know, you see what happened after Antony and Scalia died. You see what, you know, it is brass tacks. And this is where uh, conservatism in many ways is going to stack the deck in our, in our political system. And that's just the reality. And it is a sad thing to recognize that for maybe a mix of personal and ideological reasons, he has been very committed to not recognizing that reality. And that's kind of why we had a pretty bumpy path to this day. Yeah. I mean, I too kind of recognized the, you know, the painfulness of being shouted out about your mortality all the time. And I agree with you that it is probably not very pleasant for someone who has like risen to the top of the legal world to hear essentially, you know, you're just a vote for the lefties. We'll put someone else on who will also be a vote for the lefties. I get all that. But the stuff he said about, well, the court's not political, blah, blah, blah. It's really reminiscent of Manchin for me and the way of like, bipartisanship, you know, we can work together. It's it's these men speaking platitudes from a bygone era. And it's not just kind of quaint. It's really dangerous because it's putting turning such a blind eye to the damage that'll happen. And in this and in this, you know, comparison, they both happen to just be gatekeepers of a tremendous amount of power and letting their decisions be ruled by this kind of outdated nostalgia is just leaving a lot of vulnerable people very open to being hurt. So that notion kind of trumped the it must be hard to be old sympathy that I had for him. Yeah. And again, I mean, I was one of those people saying, dude, you got to retire. You have to retire. It's not that I think that he got that anybody was unfair to him. It's more just recognizing like I see where that would bum someone out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's in some ways, this is a this is a kind of a larger context to the whole judicial appointment, very unfortunate capture of the judiciary, not only by the not only by the judicial right, but in a in a broader sense by the academic legal academy in general. You know, there's this guy whose name escapes me at the moment, a law professor about my age who I don't know, maybe teaches at UCI or somewhere. I, I can't remember. You know, pretty pretty hotshot, you know, notionally liberal law professor type, who's the one who, I, you know, uh, wrote a thing for Barrett, like, oh, she deserves it. You know, liberal, you're making a mistake. She's She has great integrity. I know her. She's she's conservative, but she's top flight. You should, you should put her on the bench. It's a funny thing because it, it's that kind of elite legal academy capture of the whole process. This isn't like being a doctor. It's not like controlling, you know, it's not like uh, making sure the nuclear weapons and nuclear energy isn't blowing up, right? This is a self-referential kind of system of, of reasoning, which is great, but it's not, again, it's not a science. And with, with guys like this one person I can't, whose name escapes me at the moment, there is this tremendous myopia because kind of like, dude, 
to the extent you're looking at you're looking for your judgeship too, you're gonna get it because of the political work of Team Blue. This isn't like you're the smartest reasoner and all this kind of stuff and kind of this is that's 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 nonsense. You're you're operating in this world and you're gonna advance in it because of Team Blue if you do. And when someone like that says, "Oh, you know, hey, we're legal." academic professionals here. We're, we're, we're a little above this red blue stuff you guys play around with. And uh, Amy is top flight and, a, and a, just a very incisive legal reasoning person. So you got to put her on the court. There's a sense of like, dude, <laughs> you're, you only get all this stuff because of Team Blue and on the red side because of Team Red. So don't be saying you're above us. You have this kind of like you guys are all very smart. You have this kind of body of reasoning, history, great, great, great. But you're there because of Team Blue. And don't forget it. And Breyer in his own way, he's also there because of Team Blue. And he kind of forgot that. That argument is so silly to me for so many reasons. The whole, you know, they're a smart person. They deserve to be on the bench. Who said anything about... Uh, who cares, frankly? Who cares? I mean, it it's pretending like these people, A, did not grow up in the political currents of our time, which they have, and B, that their judicial philosophy is completely divorced from a political philosophy, which just makes no sense. It's not about who deserves to be on the court. You want to put someone on the court whose worldview aligns with your own. That's not a crime. That's not something to be embarrassed about. You know, it's just part of this kind of rebranding of the court as somehow on this island that is untouched by the political currents the rest of us are ruled by. And it's just dumb. Dumb. Yeah, that the whole thing of like, you know, deserves like, you know, vis-a-vis who? This right. <laughs> this is kind of like we live in a democracy. So, you know, there there certainly is a an argument that it's not just ideology. You want someone who's got some judgment not to not to do crazy things just because you want, you know, just someone who what they used to call a judicial temperament. You know, there's what you want, there's your philosophy, but there's a greater interest in building consensus, slow as it goes, blah, blah, you know, all that kind of stuff. So that, that's, that's, that's true. But in this whole, in this whole deserves thing, like it really is the elite legal academy really thinks they kind of own the court. Mm-hmm. It's another tenured position in their academic framework. When in fact, this is how we in a democracy run the country. So kind of like, why does, you know, why does a, a, a 30-year-old woman who cares a lot about reproductive rights owe it to Amy Barrett to put her on the court? That, right. that's, that's absurd. Or frankly, why does a, I mean, I'm trying to, <laughs> I, I know I'm stumbling into the very crude stereotypes here, but why does a 45-year-old woman who is, a, is deeply pro-life, why does she owe it? to whoever, you know, to Ruth Bader Ginsburg to put her in the court. That's that's absurd cuz this whole idea of like that you're the that you're like, you know, objectively the smartest or the best legal reasoner. Like who who cares about that? Or or even kind of like when say integrity, like dude, I'm assuming you guys are not going to steal the money or like, you know, I mean, integrity. I mean, that that's a baseline. That's not I'm not impressed by that. So yeah, it is this whole kind of capture beyond right-left stuff, capture, again, like it's another tenure position right. on a, on I mean, a, on a, on a law, law faculty. 
And not to mention that something like judicial temperament for years was considered the province of only white men. So it's not, you know, kind of an an objective standard by any means. All it's really meant is that now we only ever have people on the court who like went to Yale by and large. But, you know, and now we have this new piece, which is that Biden a long time ago vowed that if he got the chance to put a justice on the court, he would pick a black woman, which has sparked, you know, I think a lot of excitement from the left, the idea of, you know, getting to kind of rally around a a historic figure. And then on the right, you've gotten a lot of, you know, the kind of trolly Twitter presences saying, how is that not racist? You know, how is not picking at sexist, that's racist, you know, we should pick someone based on blah, 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 not, you know, their characteristics like this, as which is just, oh my gosh, drives me crazy, because it's what a false dichotomy, as if Biden is suggesting, you know, picking a black woman who who doesn't know what a court is or does versus picking some white guy who was top of his class at Harvard. Like that's not what anyone here is talking about. Um, And it's just, you know, such a way to kind of rabble rouse. Yeah. I've been, I've been, I have been much surprised. It has been bracing to me to see how immediately and directly a lot of, you know, quote unquote, legitimate conservative, you know, pundits and influencers have basically said like, hey, that's kind of weird. You're only, you know, enough with the black women. Okay. You've already picked a lot. Like, really? Like, are you really really saying that so directly? I mean, the, the other part of this is that the judicial right has been pretty open in recent years that as long as you went to a decent law school and had a passable clerkship, and if you're a right-wing ideologue, you're good to go. You know, you don't have to have written the most genius law review article or, you know, whatever other kind of, this is clearly, we looked at all 350 million people. And when it comes to justicing, this person has the, the is the smart, you know, they don't even do any of, in, any of that. So this, this whole, I mean, I saw that the, one of the guys, you know, the guy who did that whole Zillow thing during Brett Kavanaugh's uh, uh, nomination with the whole thing of proving someone else, you know, kind of going into old house records and proving it was someone else who mm-hmm. assaulted that, that uh, Blasey Ford woman or something, you know, just kind of nonsense, kind of saying like, hey, you know, black women are only you know, it was something like only 4% of lawyers and kind of, and you're doing half of your nominees are black. Like, like really? This is, I mean, look, it, it is, you don't even have to say historic whatevers. The Democratic Party, the anchors, the two anchors of the Democratic Party are African Americans and women. So like, you know, yeah, black women are going to get a number of nominations. That's just, there's nothing surprising about that. Certainly nothing scandalous about it. That's, well, that's, I mean, that's politics in a good sense. It stopped being a headline during the Trump administration that he was nominating people to the federal bench who, you know, didn't even pass kind of the bare bar associations like stamp of approval. You know, I mean, these were like, like you say, I mean, people kind of fresh out of school who had done not much of anything except prove their loyalty to the yeah. the red cause. So yeah, people who didn't even really meet the standard I was saying, which is kind of, you know, sort of like the pre Trump standard, which again, you went to kind of a top 10 law school, you 
you know, you, you, you clerked with someone, someone's heard of, and that's, you know, you're good to go. But yeah, during the Trump administration, you're getting a lot of people like, oh, this guy worked for Jared for a while. So <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. That's good enough. Yeah. And so the other thing of this, kind of in addition to a, and I just want to say the three, the three people who are, who are being considered now are each at the top of their of the sort of the legal profession. One is it was is a justice on the California Supreme Court, another's in the DC circuit. So again, the whole we're coming at multi, from multiple angles of the offensiveness of this commentary. These are like extremely uh top of their field people. And and did Joe Biden promise he would he would nominate a black woman? Yeah. And that's fine. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, this is kind of a continuation of the thing that Biden has been most successful at in his term, which is making huge inroads with the uh, federal judiciary and specifically putting a great emphasis on elevating people of color and women. Um, It's really been kind of, I think, one of the underrated, most important parts of his presidency so far that we just haven't heard about because I think there's not the same clickability to a story about Joe Biden kind of really successfully reforming the the federal bench as there was with the kind of, you know, Trump puts up another nutcase. It's his 800th right, person. Right, the, right. the courts will never be the same kind of story, which definitely dominated the coverage, you know, a few years ago. And I, I haven't, I'm going to kind of just have an asterisk over this because I haven't uh, prepped for for this, but I believe that the woman who's being considered who is now on the DC circuit also was a public defender before, you know, kind of before she became a judge or, you know, or in or in her background. And that is another thing that has been a very big deal under Biden that um, basically the model of, of both parties for many years has been you're either a pro- you were a prosecutor or you were a professor. And that's how you, you know, that's how you get into judging. And the idea that you get a public defender is kind of like, people what people who are letting off criminals that's that's beyond everything and there's been a big push within the kind of democratic jurisprudential world that kind of not every judge should come out of being a prosecutor you want some people who came out of you know the other side of 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 being a public defender and i believe that is at least part of uh, part of her background. Again, I didn't prep specifically yeah, that's for this, right. so it's possible I may have that wrong, but I believe that's the case. That is right. Yeah. And You know, so by the end of his first year, Biden had gotten confirmed the most judges to the federal bench since Ronald Reagan's first term. So that's a big deal. And part of, I think, why it's flown under the radar, and then I think this will segue us to something else I wanted to talk about before we stopped and we moved on from Breyer, is that Democrats have pretty much said yes to everyone. It's been a kind of drama-free process, you know, the getting these people confirmed to the bench. And obviously that includes Cinema and Manchin, who have famously thrown breaks into pretty much everything else that Biden's tried to do, but not judges, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And in some ways, like you talked about in your in your monologue, that was not a solace to me because I don't think it's beyond the pale to imagine now ju- this judicial confirmation becomes the big subject, the thing everyone's talking about. And Manjin and Cinema, who love being the center of attention more than anyone else, could suddenly get a notion in their idea of, you know what? We need a bipartisan judge or some other kind of meaningless thing like that. Now, we've seen, like you you mentioned, uh, you know, Manjin basically said in this um, 
interview that he doesn't have a problem with a judge who's more liberal than he is, which, you know, seems to kind of indicate which way he's leaning on this. Cinema, of course, we have heard nothing from and won't until she drops some kind of statement or something. But there's also the the fact that both of them, plus three Republicans, Collins, Murkowski, and Lindsey Graham, all just voted for specifically uh, Jackson if she ends up being the nominee just last summer to elevate her to the D.C. Circuit Court. So, you know, in the realm of what drama we expect, there's not really a lot of obvious stuff to point to. You know, it it might actually end up being as low key as will any Republicans vote with the Democrats to confirm whoever the nominee is. Uh, You know, we'll see. You you can expect Republicans are going to do some oppo digging on whoever the the candidate is but at, at least right now it looks knock wood kind of surprisingly smooth based on everything else we've watched go through congress so far yeah i mean i i i think you're right that with a supreme court nomination is not like anything else it's not like it's not just a souped up version of a uh of a circuit court nomination not even to the dc circuit uh in the sort of the legal nominations world people pay attention to those things but those things never you know barely ripple into the into the a section of a paper right it, it just it's just different and and i do think someone like I don't th- based on what we've seen I don't think this is going to happen but it's the kind of thing that one could see happening that once it becomes the big thing and everybody's asking Joe Manchin each day you know he's going to start thinking well okay well maybe maybe this maybe that and you don't want that to happen I don't think that's going to happen um and I I do think it's going to you know go basically through I do th- and and I suspect I mean look there there's this is entirely up to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema Republicans have literally no cards to play the administrative cards to play the blocking cards to play I suspect they are not even going to try like really try and that's for a couple reasons one is you're you're at 6 to 3 Mm-hmm. Republicans don't really need seven to two. I'm sure, they love it, but they don't need it. This is basically just kind of, you know, to be crass about it, locking in the third for for Democrats. They don't really have any cards they can play. So I suspect what they're going to do is spend all their time trying to define this as soft on crime, BLM, you know, on team Antifa, you know, all this kind of stuff, and then frame it that way. And then have all the all the Democrats who are up for election in the Senate vote for it and and try to and and that's what that's their play um, because they're not going to be I mean again it's it is purely up to Joe Manchin or and Kirsten Cinema or you know for whatever reason some other Democrat would and that's not going to happen so I think it'll basically go through fine and again Republicans will just use it as a messaging opportunity in pretty crass ways. Um, the one kind of substantive thing is that it, if it is someone who has been a public defender, like, oh, you know, let's talk about all the murderers she helped, all, you know, that kind of stuff. In a period when crime for all of the, you know, politicization of it, there has been a, a spike in crime during the pandemic. That's just a reality and it's, it's more politically salient. I think that's what's going to, I think that's what's going to happen. It is, it is what it is. Not like the Democrats can't can't try to define it in their own way. 
Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's kind of like how Republicans will treat a very prominent, powerful woman of color is not, you know, a huge surprise. They basically run the same playbook every time, uh, you know, even when they couldn't decide whether Kamala Harris was a cop or Antifa. They just kind of tried to play both dangerous in some way seems to be, you know, the default with her with, you know, AOC getting wall to wall coverage every night on Fox. That's just kind of what they do. Um, but I think, you know, the part of this that shouldn't be under you know, understated is that it's also a a huge boon for the other side. I think it really does give Democrats something to be excited about. And perhaps most importantly, politically, it gives Biden and co something to point to, to be like, see, this is why it's important that you voted for us. You know, our legislative agenda has run into roadblocks. But if you hadn't put a Republican in the Senate, if you hadn't voted for the two Georgia senators, this is not the situation we'd be in. So in that way, I think it gives a big kind of morale boost to a constituency that sorely needs it at this point. Yeah. And I, and I, and I think, although, again, I would not rely on it, I all I do think this is another reason why uh, Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin are not going to make trouble because in addition to whatever substantive reasons why they're actually fine with this there's there's a lot of broken glass on the ground in in those relationships and even for them I don't think they have no interest in in creating more turbulence within the Democratic caucus at the moment even them All right so let's um let's move on to the Ukraine-Russia situation, which is kind of looming in the background of everything right now. We're basically in a situation where Russia has put more than 100,000 troops, along with armor and missile systems, on its border with Ukraine. Seems like they're going to invade. Maybe they won't. People are doing a lot of kind of trying to read Putin's mind at this moment. Um, The United States has about 8,500 troops on high alert. Um, And it's just this kind of tense situation. There are negotiations ongoing, um, you know, various kind of groupings of people meeting and trying to figure out what's going on. Um, And and Biden has basically said, you know, if Russia invades, he said it would be the most consequential thing that's happened in the world in terms of war and peace since World War II. But right now, the White House is kind of maintaining this position of, you know, I think trying to trying to comfort people that it's not going to be America's war if Russia invades while kind of trying to balance responsibilities to, you know, whatever responsibilities there are to Ukraine and this idea that America can't just sit by and let other countries invade other countries and be okay with it. So there's all that mix going on. So kind of what do you make of it? And what do you make of Biden's options right now? Well, I think there's a few different parts of this. Um, one is that the U.S. is not going to attempt to militarily block Russia from doing anything in, in Ukraine. And wh- and when I say militarily, I mean with the U.S. military. Can sell them weapons, can sort of support them, can and I suspect will do like very draconian sanctions, kind of economic warfare. But we have no treaty obligation to Ukraine. And it's good that we have no treaty obligation to Ukraine because that is, well, it's, it's just good. And, you know, it's on, it is on Russia's border. I think that Biden has done a pretty good job with a pretty limited set of options. This is up to Vladimir Putin. And it is hard to overstate the degree to which this is, you know, 
this this isn't a kind of a process of a number of things happening and it's gotten to this point. Putin just kind of up and did this and just kind of started mobilizing and said, I'm going to invade. Um, and it's, it, it is very understandable from 30,000 feet what is going on here. And, and even understand, I mean, look, Russia, certainly Putin's vision of Russia, and that is a big part of, of Russian identity. He speaks for a lot of people, sees Ukraine as a region of, of greater Russia doesn't see it as really a, a, a real country. It's just kind of some, that's something that happened when the Soviet Union fell apart. And the United States and NATO is trying to kind of, you know, bring that part of Russia into their system. And that is both a kind of historical offense and a security offense. And if it's not going to be part of Russia, it at least needs to be a tractable satellite state that follows Russia's lead in national security and everything else, right? And that is what Russia had when uh, Viktor Yanukovych was the president uh, and, and his overthrow, you know, that whole thing and which sparked the annexation of Crimea. That, that's what this is about. And, and really, this has been going on for almost since the end of the Soviet Union. But this is kind of out of the blue in a basic sense, and I think has a lot, you know, has a lot to do with Putin's understanding of his own legacy, that he's trying to repair the things that he thinks were done wrong to Russia uh, at the at the end of the Cold War. Um, and but but here's here's the thing that I think has been underplayed in in the in the U.S. coverage of this. This is a very dangerous situation. It's a very bad situation for Ukraine. There's not a lot of grays here. But this is also a pretty dangerous, high risk situation for Russia. And, you know, the big question is, what does he want exactly? Again, big picture, everybody understands what he wants. He wants a tractable satellite state in Ukraine that that follows Russia's lead and doesn't make trouble. But what does he want specifically here? How does he expect to get to there? And I think that as best as we can tell, what he wants to happen is this. They launch into the eastern part of Ukraine. They drop a lot of bombs. They really maul and kill a lot of people in the Ukrainian military. And they break so much stuff that the Ukrainian state crumbles. Zelensky resigns. You know, it all kind of falls apart under that kind of stress. Some pro-Russian people come in and say, okay, I'm taking over. And now you've got your your Yanukovych-style state there. Um, the problem is, what if that doesn't happen? What if you break a lot of stuff and and kill a lot of people, and you 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 at least temporarily occupy a big part of the eastern part of Ukraine? And what if they're kind of like, okay, we're we're still fighting you, we may be losing, but we're not giving up. At that point, what does he do? He most of Ukraine does not want to be part of Russia, doesn't want to be occupied by Russia. He may have some ambivalence about, you know, kind of whose orbit they're in, but they don't want to be dominated by Russia. The parts of Ukraine that that are heavily populated by ethnic Russians and may want to be annexed or set up a little mini state, you know, they've already kind of taken those. It's like a couple provinces in, in the east. But if that doesn't happen, suddenly you can't just say, okay, I guess that didn't work and leave because that's humiliating. But then you're going to try to occupy the whole country or a big part of the country. Then you're occupying a country's hard. 
And sort of suddenly you're faced with a lot of really bad options. And so I think what this is all this, you know, if, if, if Putin really wanted to invade, he would have done it already. And he hasn't. So there's a lot of risk here. And it's just a, it's, it's, it's just a bad situation. And I think that Biden is, is handling it about as well as he can, which is basically to say, look, we're not going to commit to you that 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 Ukraine's never going to come into NATO. We're certainly not going to commit to you not to defend NATO allies. To the extent that you have real security concerns, we will we'll talk and try to, you know, give you some assurances, but we're not going to do those things. And that's kind of just, that's what it is. And if you do do something, we're going to kind of throw everything at you in terms of sanctions and and cutting you off from the rest of, uh, you know, cutting you off from the European economy, world economy, blah, 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 blah. So he's, I think he's doing a pretty good job with a, with, a, with a very bad hand, put it that way. Yeah. I think on the one hand, just the impossibility of Putin kind of sustaining an invasion or an occupation is contributing to the mindset of some people who are like, I think, you know, maybe this is a bluff. Maybe this is an attempt to kind of exact Western concessions without going all the way. But then on the other hand, I think you have people who know Putin really well and know that he has shown in the past a tendency to be impulsive and a willingness to kind of go forth with plans that are not baked through. So I think that's kind of contributing to this sense of precariousness and a sense that you might not be dealing with a wholly rational actor, which always, I think, just kind of, you know, ups the stakes and and uh, ups the worries. And then I think, you know, the way that it's funny because foreign policy is so often kind of ignored by a lot of the, especially the the very DC kind of, you know, the newsletters, the, the that kind of sect of the of the Beltway media. But because before this Breyer thing happened, Congress is on recess and Biden didn't really have anything planned. Suddenly Russia, Ukraine became the only game in town. So that's what a lot of people were, you know, kind of basing their coverage on. And then a lot of it is, you know, this is important for Biden, especially because of the botched Afghanistan rollout, which is interesting, I think, because it's almost a little bit of this, you know, the blob, the kind of uh, conservative Washington mindset of weakness, this this amorphous idea of weakness is, you know, debilitating, needs to be avoided at any cost. Often that manifests in, in very kind of belligerent positions, very bellicose positions. Um, you know, I, I still don't really understand what the anti-weakness position in Afghanistan meant, if that meant just staying there for perpetuity or what. But you've kind of got that sect of the landscape. And then you've also got the sect of the Tucker Carlson's who full Russia, full Russia. I mean, Carlson said on his show, you know, why is it loyalty to you? Why are we, why is it loyalty if it's to Ukraine? But you know, it's betrayal if it's to Russia, essentially. And Tom Malinowski, this representative from New Jersey said, he was shocked that his office was getting flooded with calls after this Tucker Carlson segment from people saying, you know, Russia's position is reasonable. Why, why are we fighting against it? You know, so it is kind of interesting. You've got the the old guard, the old kind of pugnacious guard, and then you've got the whatever's kind of grown out of the Trumpism part. That's like, you know, Putin's our boy. So what's the problem here? Yeah, yeah it, it is kind of a funny thing. And, and to a great extent, the GOP has allowed itself and, and I guess in some terms succeeded in both in both being the sort of the Russia hawks. Oh, you're going easy on Russia. And and mm-hmm. also the leader of their party is like, 
the most pro-Russia guy. I mean, it's you know the whole thing is 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 a bit nonsensical. I mean, you know, one of the things there was actually a quote in a, in an interview about with some Russia specialist, and they were, and and the person asked him like, you know, do you think Russia thinks that Biden's weak because of Afghanistan? And it was an interesting answer because I think this is the answer that um, people who actually run militaries and are involved in this great power kind of stuff. They saw it as smart, not weak. Great powers do not become great powers or maintain great powers by never cutting their losses anywhere. That's how you get overstretched and collapse, basically. You have to, even a great power, even even the dominant global power has to, you can't be everywhere at the same time. You know, you can't be focused on uh, Taiwan and Ukraine, both of which for complicated reasons, we have a lot of very real national security economic uh, investments in because you've, you're, you're, you're kind of bleeding out in Afghanistan where our interests are much more minimal despite all that stuff about, oh, as soon as you leave, uh, you know, uh, zombie bin Laden's going to come back and there's going to be another World Trade Center attack. So, um you know, we've always had, I mean, this was kind of a lot of what the 1960s and 1970s were about in, you know, nationals in national security, political wrangling was, you know, you, you know, you pull out of um, Vietnam, and suddenly you're weak, and they're going to come at us through the, you know, through that one mountain gap in Germany or something like that. There's, you know, being a being doing foreign policy and being a great power is not about never cutting your losses and always seeing it through. It's making good decisions about wh- when you do which. It's just, that just, it, as, as it is in life, right? That's, that's what life is like that too. You got It's not about always doing one thing or another. It's, it's figuring out with limited information when to do what. You know, the, w- the one thing I will add to this, and I think it's something that, again, is not, is not as on the radar as it should be. Russia supplies about 40% of the natural gas to Europe. If you get a military confrontation and a ton of sanctions, it's not impossible. Russia just cuts off that supply, at least temporarily, right? I mean, they need the money too. They can't just, but they could, they could really create like a kind of a, a, an economic crisis in Europe, or at least a massive spike in energy. Play. So, so this kind of thing, you think, well, I, you know, look, I don't live in Ukraine, not my problem, and I don't care about you know U.S. credibility and stuff. Well. It's tied up with all these other things, and you do probably care about a, a big spike in energy prices that's going to make inflation temporarily go to fifteen percent or something like that. So there's a lot of different moving pieces here that make it all pretty complicated. You know, pretty complicated. Okay, let's move on before we get to questions. Briefly, there's been another kind of stroke of of good for democracy news out of Alabama, surprisingly, because. A panel of three judges, two Trump appointees, one Clinton, uh, knocked down the map saying that it was a violation of the VRA by not drawing more than one district where black voters will probably get to choose the candidate of their choice. Um, The Alabama AG, Steve Marshall, has already appealed to the 11th Circuit. It's very likely that this will advance to the Supreme Court, where we know that at least Clarence Thomas thinks that Section 2 of the VRA does not cover racial uh, gerrymandering. So, you know, long way to go, I guess. But of a panel of two Trump appointees, you know, it still kind of takes you aback that they knock this down, even though 
you know, on its face, Black residents make up 27% of the population in Alabama, yet they're a majority in only one of the seven House seats that the state gets. So, you know, I've been working on a different redistricting story this week and kind of asked those experts, by the way, what do you think about the Alabama case? And to a one, they were all like, this is a big sign of hope in what looked like a potentially hopeless landscape because you just at this point kind of expect that right wing judge appointees will not be amenable to these challenges against gerrymandered maps, particularly now that the Voting Rights Act has been so thoroughly gutted by the Supreme Court. Well, it, it, and it does seem here like the folks in Alabama, the, the, you know, the, the folks running politics in Alabama kind of thought the same thing, mm-hmm. that they thought it was sort of like it is like with Roe now, like, eh, they're looking to get rid of Roe. So we can right. do anything and, and the Supreme Court will just, co- you know, have our back and, and validate it and we'll be making progress. And it does seem like, I mean, again, that, that, you're basically piling all the African-American vote into one very, very black district. And, and basically, blacks are kind of excluded in all the other districts. It, it seems like they thought they could get away with anything. And even, I mean, I, I give these Trump judges credit more than I would have expected. But it does seem like they pushed it too far. And even these Trump judges were basically like, hey, <laughs> this is, you know, this mm-hmm. is kind of doesn't doesn't cut it on its face. And this is on the heels of some other, um, you know, positive redistricting news for the reform minded among us, which includes that the Ohio Supreme Court already knocked down the state legislative and congressional maps uh, for violating a state constitutional prohibition on partisan gerrymandering. And then the North Carolina Supreme Court has already kind of preemptively pushed back the state's primaries to allow for time for the challenges against the GOP drawn maps. So, you know, more more cases where kind of extreme gerrymanders are running into some kind of uh, legal buzzsaw. You know, we'll we'll see the full extent of that. But uh, there's some, you know, some promising signs in a landscape that I think looked very bleak for a long time. Yeah, no, that that is uh, it is encouraging. It is yep. encouraging. Okay, so now let's take a couple questions. Um, the first is from Zach, who says, with hindsight being twenty twenty, do you still think it was the right move for Biden and the Democrats to pass BIF without the Build Back Better bill? Doesn't Biden look even weaker now that he got nothing for all the work he got done and the insurances he gave to fellow Democrats on Build Back Better? So, you know, this question is about, it feels like, years and years ago at this point. But basically when... Democrats allowed for the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better Reconciliation Bill to be decoupled um, and to pass the infrastructure one first after having a couple showdowns in the House where House progressives said, you know, no, we're not going to allow these to be decoupled. We don't trust Manchin and Cinema enough to pass the reconciliation piece afterwards without right. holding the infrastructure bill as leverage. Um, and then they basically kind of conceded and said the president has you know, promise he's going to get this done. And that's, you know, how things went forward. And, you know, I, I don't know, at the, even at the time when progressives kind of, you know, quote unquote caved, I felt that if I was a progressive in the house, I probably would not have voted for Biff. I very much understand the stance that some of them took by not because they were absolutely right. Mansion and Cinema proved not to be trustworthy. But by the same token, we just went through the gauntlet enough times before that I really think 
it had become very clear that Manchin and Cinema didn't care enough about the bipartisan infrastructure bill to ensure the survival of reconciliation and would have been fairly happy if neither passed. So to some degree, I think getting what they could done, you know, doing what they could do was ultimately the right move. Yeah, that that's where I am too. I mean, I was very, very, very pro-linkage up until the point when they delinked. And I, I, I think, you know, very painfully, I think that was the right decision. Uh, obviously, I wish it would have helped get to passing the Build Back Better bill. And again, they're talking about taking this up again in the spring. So I don't think we can totally rule out that that a, a, a version of it is still going to happen. But assuming this is it, yeah, I, I still think it was painful as it is, the right decision. Because as Kate says, basically, I think both of them were, were ready for the infrastructure bill to go down. I, I don't... The reason I changed my mind on that is that it was not forcing them to play ball on the Build Back Better. It was, it was basically just going to be forever in this back and forth that made the Democrats seem both weak and sort of contemptible, just kind of a joke. Um, and you probably weren't going to get either. And I think that Build Back Better was definitely the, the more important bill. But I wasn't in that camp who saw the infrastructure bill as either a negative or kind of, you know, who cares? I think it was a, it was a, a good piece, of, not, a, not a perfect piece, of, but better that it passed than not. And it was just clear that it was not leveraged to get uh, build back better past. We would, if they hadn't made that decision, we would still be in the sort of um, groundhog day, you know, that we were, that we'd been in for six months. So yes, I think it was the right decision, even though it hasn't got it, it hasn't led to what I certainly would have uh, preferred. My, my biggest quibble with the handling of the, the moving of these two pieces of legislation is I am still really hung up on the fact that Schumer had that memo that Manchin and he, you know, kind of weirdly signed that laid out Manchin's priorities, how big he would let the bill get, everything like that. And not even that Schumer didn't share it. Like, I understand that he probably genuinely thought he would be able to move Manchin and change his mind on stuff. But I I really fundamentally don't understand why that didn't inform the expectation game at all. I feel like they, they got that information and then they were like, meh, yeah, we'll, we'll move them. In the meantime, let's keep talking about a $6 trillion bill as if that's anywhere on the table. That well, to me was Wasn't the that also quality. when they were I mean, I, I agree with your basic point, but wasn't wasn't that thing signed or whatever or initialed mm -hmm. at the point at which the, the model was three point five, not six? I think it was. Yeah, I that might be was, right. I'm I'm kind of being hyperbolic. But yeah. but same difference. I take your point. Um yeah, sort of. I mean it's pretty difficult negotiating with a bad faith negotiator. Yeah, and, that's and, true. And and with and with Manchin I it almost gives him too much credit to say bad faith. It's more kind of like someone who's just making it up as they go along and doesn't feel bound by anything. I mean, in some ways, the biggest thing to take away from that is that they weren't really agreeing to anything, I think. I mean, like, it was basically Manchin saying, okay, here's, here's you know, I'm not promising to go above this. And and Schumer initialed it and said, okay, cool, I hear you. We're going to try to get you to go higher. 
that's not an that's not an agreement in any sense. But but the real takeaway, if you want to if you want to think about it, to sort of get a sense of what this negotiation was about, he was saying, "I will vote for this size. I won't True. commit to going higher. I will vote for this size." And they eventually got down to that size, and he still wouldn't vote for it. So, <laughs> you know, it, it's, yeah, it's, but Josh, that's because they yeah. used his name in a. In a yes, press release, ex- ex- like please exactly, exactly, give exactly. that crime against humanity the stature yeah, it deserves. Yeah, so you know it's it's it's. But to the to the larger point, it uh, yes, there's. I, I get what you're saying, and I kind of agree about that point at some level. Kind of like you got everybody really thinking three point five was in the bag. That was kind of that was pretty deflating when we found out that wasn't the case. But again. He was saying 1.5 or whatever it was was in the bag, but that also wasn't in the bag. There was no bag, or the bag was only had a, had an opening on both sides. You know, so it's 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 pretty hard to know how to how to manage that or to say, okay, he's only committing to X when he wasn't committing to you know he wasn't committing to that, and who knows? It, yeah. It's it's hard to negotiate with a bad faith negotiator, to put it mildly. I think that's fair. Okay, and now we have a question from Mike who says he has a mansion question. What does he want? Let's assume Build Back Better and voting rights are completely off the table. What does he want to be talking about? What is the issue he wants to show up to work on every day? I think this is such an interesting question because it gets to the heart of my despair about Joe Manjin, which is basically that so few people get the chance to dramatically change the course of history. And he is positioned in a place where he could do that. He could get legislatively absolutely anything he wanted. You know, he could get bill after bill that is stuffed to the brim with stuff that helps West Virginians. And he could have them all named after him if he wanted. But the myopia of his imagination is such that he's decided that being bipartisan, being centrist means not doing anything. It means not taking hard votes. It means not, you know, thinking of imaginative legislation. It means not dwelling on any of the ills that plague his state and thinking of ways to fix them. It basically means being pretty cheerful, doing nothing, you know, coming into work, telling reporters, oh, we're talking, we're negotiating, things are going well and leaving it at that. And that I think is just one of the saddest parts of his kind of psychic landscape. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, when you say like, you know, what, what's, what's, what does he want to be? What does he want the agenda to move to? What does he want to be talking about? What's his, what's, what's his agenda? His agenda is just talking to reporters about whatever the whatever is on the agenda. I, he doesn't have any idea. He, that, that's always been the thing with him. He 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 likes being a senator. He likes the attention. He likes you know hanging out with lobbyists and other senators on his boat, and that's just kind of his shtick. And 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 um. I don't, you know, it's it's not even like, it would be one thing if he was some sort of like, you know, hardcore anti-spending dude. And he really, this was going to be his legacy, stopping the BBB. It wasn't even that. It just kind of wasn't into it and heard different things and Biden became less popular. And it it's just, <laughs> he has no agenda. He wants he wants the backslapping to continue. He likes the attention from reporters. He just wants to be in the mix, and that's that's his agenda, which is which is pretty you know pretty unfortunate, right? I mean, I guess it's a little better than his agenda being, uh, you know, switching party to the Republicans and 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 passing a big tax cut. Looks like he'll help out on on the judicial 
confirmations. That's great. You know, li- quite literally could be worse. <laughs> could be could be worse. There's but that optimism. His, yeah, yeah, but but that's his his agenda is that he has has no agenda. His agenda is to be in the mix and and have uh, microphones in front of his in front of his face for whatever it is we're talking about. And that's that. And that is that. Well, <laughs> it's not quite that because remember, the Josh Marshall podcast is brought to you by Grady's Cold Brew Ice Coffee, and you can get twenty five percent off at Grady'sColdBrew.com with promo code TPM. But after that, that is it. All right. uh, We'll we'll see you next next week. week. Later. The Josh Marshall Podcast is hosted by me, TPM reporter Kate Riga, and TPM founder, editor-in-chief Josh Marshall. The show is produced by Jackie Wilhelm. Thanks to Why Not Jansfeld for our podcast theme song. And thanks to all our TPM members who make this possible. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen. 